Hello, and thank you for listening to The History of World War II Podcast, Episode 339, The Battle of Cape Matapan. Wars, like most strung-out events, happen in phases. For the people of Malta, there was a time of being surrounded, but not involved, in the war, as Italy had yet to commit itself. Then, with France all but beaten, Mussolini jumped in, if only to gain access to the negotiating table that was sure to come, when Britain realized it could not win. But as the Italian air raids were jeered at while being stood up to, that changed when German planes and crews put in their appearance. This was to help secure the convoy route from Italy to Tripoli, as the Germans were about to get involved in North Africa. But to the Maltese, focused on themselves, it was the darkest, scariest phase so far. But would it turn out to be the worst phase of the war for them? And now that the Germans were here, they were bringing their professionalism and what they learned in bombing London. But they also brought their ME-109 fighters, which immediately got the attention of the RAF pilots in their hurricanes. Overall, the 109s had a better speed and climb rate. However, the Hurricanes were easier to fly, which helped as their pilots mostly had less combat experience and the British planes had better maneuverability. But as the Germans were coming in to replace or augment the Italian pilots, the British must have felt that the threat against them and what they protected had increased significantly. And yet... The Maltese and the various troops defending them found out right away, for the Germans it would take a while, that their various types of bombs, again effective along the south coast of Britain, were less so here. Most of the buildings on the island were made from limestone blocks, which cut out the need for timber. Besides, that was expensive to ship to the island, so the German incendiary bombs had less to set aflame. As for the ordinary explosives, they did less damage than desired by the Germans, unless a direct hit was made, which caused another switch, this time, to parachute mines. From the Great War and the early period of World War II, the Germans found themselves with an abundance of magnetic sea mines. Indeed, early on, these mines, dropped from a Hinkle HE-115 or 111, managed to damage the HMS Belfast, a British cruiser, on November 21st of 1939, in the Firth of Forth, while on the same night, the HMS Gypsy was damaged at Harwich, Essex, by the same type of bomb. But then, a mine landed in the mud of the Thames Estuary, and whether due to the mud negating its activation requirements or a malfunction, the unexploded mine was retrieved and studied. As the mine was magnetic, the British found that degaussing their ships or reducing their magnetic signatures would help stop the mine from being attracted to the vessel. This was done by the installation of electric wires around the inside of the hull. According to Nazi archives, it was Reichsmarschall C&C of the Luftwaffe, Hermann Goering, that ordered the parachute mines to be used against London, starting on September 16th, 1940. The bombs were dropped, attached to parachutes, which caused their descending speed to be about 40 miles per hour, or 64 kilometers an hour. As they weighed 1,000 or 2,200 pounds, or 500 kilograms or 1,000 kilograms, they would break through the roof of a building, and only 25 seconds later, 
explode, increasing the damage they could do compared to detonating while still on the rooftop. This was what the Maltese and their defenders were dealing with now. Roughly six weeks after the moment the first 109s appeared over Malta, in early March 1941, the singer Al Bowley, a South African British vocalist and jazz guitarist who had a hit in 1940 with It's a Lovely Day Tomorrow, which would become wrapped up in World War II nostalgia, was killed by a parachute mine. Having given a performance at the Rex Cinema in Oxford Street, High Wycombe, Bowley took a train that night to his place at 32 Duke Street, Duke's Court, St. James, London. At 10 minutes past 3 in the morning of April 17, 1941, a parachute mine detonated just outside his flat. It blew his door in, which probably struck him in the head while he was asleep, though his body was not disfigured. He was later buried at Hanwell Cemetery, Uxbridge Road, Hanwell, with the other bomb victims of that night. Back to Malta early in March, a Suzanne Palby was out bicycling with a friend. She worked in the cipher office of the Lascaris War Office along the east side of the capital's peninsula, though underground. At the moment, she had smallpox, so her bosses responded with, stay away from everyone. So she went further inland to enjoy the sunny day. Her first experience with an ME-109 though its official designation was BF-109, was one diving down to strafe her and a friend, which caused them to jump from their bikes and hide in a stone drain under the road. As it was only two people the plane was targeting, obviously the pilot was being cruel, but inefficient. But that was something Suzanne well understood. Her father, an admiral of the Royal Navy, had wanted a son. So when Suzanne was born, he spent her first 18 years being cruel to her to pay her back for not being a male who could follow in his footsteps. So when an equally young John Palby of the Devonshire Regiment came along and asked for her hand in marriage, she jumped at the chance, anything to get away from her father. True, she did not know young John very well, but he turned out to be nice. However, as she did not know much about life, the honeymoon could have gone better. But then the Italians came to her rescue by declaring war, which forced Suzanne to the barracks with other families, while young Paul had to stay with his regiment. Suzanne was rather pleased with how things were working out. This podcast could not exist without the help of sponsors like Yahoo Finance. When it comes to your financial future, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, you've invested all that you can. Now, you need to take those investments to the next level by using what every financial great uses, Yahoo Finance. I've stressed this in my podcast about command and control, which is exactly what Yahoo Finance is. You can see all your investments and retirement accounts in one place. You can consolidate your views from multiple accounts into one hub and access the expert analysis you need to tend to your entire portfolio with confidence. Yahoo Finance has been around for more than 25 years, and they've worked things out. You've got the tools you need right at your fingertips. I open up my Yahoo Finance, and within seconds, I can see how my stocks and investments are doing. And basically, investing is all about growth. And in order to grow, you need to know what's going on. 
For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. That's yahoofinance.com. As it became clear to Churchill and his war cabinet that the Germans would have to intervene in Greece as Hitler needed to help the struggling Mussolini there, it was decided by London to take many of the troops from North Africa for this very purpose. The British, Indian, and Commonwealth forces there had enjoyed praiseworthy success by pushing the Italians as far west as El Aguila in central North Libya. This had come in February of 1941, at the end of Operation Compass, which saw the destruction-slash-capture of the Italian 10th Army. And yet, the buildup of German forces in Tripoli, just west of El Aguila, could not be ignored. Compass might come unraveled. Of course, it would have been best had Admiral Cunningham's Mediterranean fleet been able to prevent this buildup but he and his were stretched thin as it was, and would be stretched even thinner soon enough. But the next best thing would be to destroy or severely cut supplies to those forces that had already landed. The RAF units on Malta were tapped for this purpose. Specifically, 830 Squadron was chosen. The crewmen guessed that something was up as their fairy swordfish biplanes were being armed with magnetic or parachute mines. Two could play at this game. Some of these long, narrow bombs, either just over five or eight feet, or just under two or four meters, were called cucumbers by the British. Funny enough, but what Nat Gold, a telegraphist air gunner, or TAG, which provided communications by Morse code and manned the rear gun, found less funny, was the modern or stern-looking bombs being attached to their swordfish. For the host planes were anything but modern or stern-looking, much like a zeppelin carrying a modern fighter. The swordfish were introduced in 1934 and technically would stick around to the end of the war. But even before Poland was invaded, they were obsolete. But the comparatively slow planes could get the job done this night of March 17th, 18th. In all, five swordfish were fixed with magnetic mines, while other planes were loaded with smaller bombs and flares. That night, the squadron was told they were being sent to hit the harbor at Tripoli. The first two planes would go in and drop flares to mark where the mines should be dropped at the harbor's entrance. Then those same two planes would drop their smaller bombs on any gun emplacements they found. This would hopefully clear the area for the magnetic mines to be dropped, thus making the harbor unusable. Nat Gold's plane would be the last to go in. 830 Squadron took off at 11.30 p.m. on March 17th, using the occasionally flashing lights that outlined the runway. As it was a full moon, the light would assist with the attack. Conversely, the Germans were known to also use the moonlight to launch attacks on Malta, which meant that the nine swordfish may end up landing on a strip with minimal lighting that now contained barely visible bomb craters, if they made it back at all. The lead plane approached Tripoli at 1.30 a.m., the moonlight allowing the pilots to see 15 miles out. 
But as all military planners will tell you, you make a plan, the plan goes to hell in a handbasket, and then you make up another plan, right there on the spot. The flares were successfully dropped by the first two planes, but as the five planes carrying the magnetic mines dove down to accurately release their deadly cargo, they found a large ship in their flight path. Fortunately, the three-hour flight allowed the pilot's eyesight to adjust to the weak light. Alternating their approach, they were able to place the mines properly. This left the dive bombers, like Nat's plane, to fly over and cause additional destruction and chaos. However, by now, the still undamaged AA crews were throwing up lead. The swordfish were moving as fast as they could to avoid the flak, but they found that the light from the tracers did temporarily blind the pilots. It could not be helped. As Nat's plane was last, his pilot had the longest time to assess the rapidly changing situation below. So the pilot called out that his bombs were not going to be wasted on a gun emplacement. But at the moment, Nat, being bounced around, although strapped in, didn't think it would have been such a waste. No, instead the pilot was going to go for another large ship in the harbor. Starting his dive at 4,000 feet, once the plane was down to 800 feet, the bombs were released, landing across the ship's forecastle, that is, the upper part of the front section of the ship, normally where the crew was quartered. Nat's pilot had the least amount of experience of the squadron, but even he knew that once the bombs were away, there was no point in sticking around to see if any damage was done. Ego would get them all killed. So the pilot banked and banked again, trying to lose the searchlight. Because if he got free of that, their gunners would be, literally, shooting in the dark. Fortunately, Nat's plane managed to turn around, pull up, and head for home. Which was not the case for one of the other dive bombers. Plane Q, each had a designation, was hit as it was diving. The crew managed to bail out, but Nat knew they would soon be inside an Italian POW camp, with nowhere to run to, being as they were, in a desert. The war was over for them. Nat's plane started its descent at 4.20 a.m. There could be no lights, as it would give away their airfield, but the moonlight wasn't trying very hard either. The plane landed so hard, it bounced three times before staying down. The mission was over, a success, but it had cost 830 Squadron one plane and two crewmen. Admiral Cunningham's desire to take the fight to the enemy versus what London needed from him was quickly becoming a real-world metaphor for the question, what happens when an unstoppable force meets an immovable object? In this case, the unstoppable force were the Italians and the ever greater number of Germans operating in the Mediterranean which made Cunningham the immovable object, as he desired to impede their progress. But there was only so much an immovable object could do, especially without his armored carrier, Illustrious. First, he had been told that at least half of the troops in North Africa were to be shipped to Greece, and of course he would have to provide escort duty. To the Admiral's thinking, this was, respectfully said, a bad chess move. It exposed North Africa to Rommel, which meant Egypt, which meant the Suez Canal, and, of course, opened the way to the Middle East. 
Next, Cunningham did not want to even lay odds on getting those troops safely to southern Greece. He, like 830 Squadron, had been losing men and equipment to Tripoli for daring to venture too close. Now he was supposed to transport thousands of men and equipment to Greece. But what if the Germans threw all their Sicilian-based planes at the convoy? The results could be ruinous. To prove his point, though he did not know the details at the time, but C&C Wavell did, or should have, that when Rommel first landed, the force in between him and Cairo was the Western Desert Force under General Richard O'Connor, which had just completed Operation Compass. But once the bulk of these men were gone, bound for Greece, there would only be 16 heavy AA guns to support the remaining men, and Rommel had over 200 aircraft for when he started his assault, which would be soon enough. The British-led force there were left with less than 20 planes. Then there was Malta itself. The island's air umbrella had been adequate enough, but that was before the 109Fs showed up. Even a new Hurricane Mark I would have trouble against this faster machine, and Air Commodore Maynard's birds were anything but new. Indeed, they were Frankenstein versions of their former selves, having been held together with parts of other damaged planes. It got to the point in March where Maynard did not even want to send them up against the 109s. What was the point? The planes would be shot down, the pilots killed, and Malta still bombed. It simply wasn't worth it. And actually worse than having inadequate planes to pit against the enemy, Maynard did not have enough of them. With the opening of March, five more hurricanes arrived. On March 18th, another six arrived. It may have seemed the beginning of a build-up of a proper force, what to shield the island, harass enemy ships, hunt for enemy subs, much less protecting convoys. But none of that was possible, because on the same day that six hurricanes arrived, five were shot down with their pilots. As one British pilot put it, this was the one day we thought we had the edge. It was the first time we had managed to get eight aircraft into the air in one formation in the two months that I had been on the island. Of the eight pilots, only three returned. But what the pilot does not mention is that those eight hurricanes had gone up against at least 100 enemy aircraft. He still thought it might have turned out to be a good day. Which is why Admiral Cunningham wrote to the first sea lord, Sir Dudley Pound, saying, We need planes, lots of them, to cover the various enterprises going on, now and in the immediate future. But the best that Pound could do, and there had been some high-level fighting even for this, was more hurricanes would arrive in the Mediterranean on March 28th. A lifetime away to the people of Malta. Cunningham wanted to point out that, by March 28th, most of the North African troops would have been sent to Greece. Well, the attempt would have been made, and another convoy was to reach Malta again, if ABC could shepherd it there safely. In the end, it came down to limited supplies. The home island could only produce so many planes, and they were all needed in many different theaters. And history has shown that limited supplies means setting priorities.
Problem was, Cunningham and Pound had differing top concerns. ABC was looking out for the Mediterranean. Pound was considering the entire state. For the first six months of 1941, hundreds of thousands of tons of supplies of all kinds were sunk by German U-boats just off America's east coast. And all this had been bound for Great Britain. It would take a full six months for the Americans, specifically Admiral King, Chief of Naval Operations, to trust enough in the convoy system to fully implement it. That, combined with more ships and sub-hunting planes that had yet to be built, were what eventually caused Admiral Karl Donitz, the Supreme Commander of the German Navy, to pull back his submarines. But for those six months, the Allies on both sides of the Atlantic despaired. As such, Sir Pound was focused on the Atlantic, not the Mediterranean. However, as things worked out, the latest convoy made it to Malta. Ironically, it was bombed only after arriving in port in the Grand Harbor. Either way, another 24,000 tons of supplies kept Malta going. And then, Admiral Cunningham was given a gift from the god of war himself. Since the morning after Mussolini entered the war, Cunningham had been dying to draw the Italian fleet out into an open contest, a la Alfred Thayer Mayon, one giant naval clash to determine the master of the Mediterranean for the foreseeable future. And it looked like it was about to happen. Intelligence was coming to ABC, and it was increasing through the second half of March, that the Italians were planning something big. That something was Operation Gado. The Italian Navy would operate around Crete to make sure that no more British troops or supplies reached Greece. Of course, Cunningham did not know this and guessed that the Italians were either about to send reinforcements to North Africa or launch a diversionary excursion to get ABC's attention while there was an all-out attack made on either Greece, North Africa, or possibly Malta itself. But all these possibilities frustrated Cunningham, as he told his staff, not unlike Sherlock Holmes, give me the facts, I will make the deductions. And his guess was Greece, for surely the Axis partners could not desire more British troops to land in southern Greece. We now know that that had to be locked up tight before Russia could be invaded. And the Admiral was right, which was soon supported by ultra-signals, from Bledgley Park. But what got Operation Gado going was the Germans, not the Italians. Berlin made certain promises that allowed Admiral Angelo Iaccino to help fulfill his desire for revenge after Taranto. To be sure, the Italian book ciphers were still being figured out by Bletchley Park, but the ones used by the Italian Navy, those the English civilians felt more comfortable about. Here, was Cunningham's chance. The Germans had told Iaccino that they had recently damaged two British battleships, which was untrue. The damaged ships were either cruisers or destroyers. Next, Berlin promised the entirety of the 10th Flieger Corps in support of this upcoming fight. Now the bad news. Iaccino could only ask for air support, German or Italian, by going through the Italian naval headquarters, as in he would not have 
his own Air Force to command. Not optimal. Because, well, just like every other country since the beginning of time, the military branches of Italy did not get along and did not want to work together. Empires have been brought down by this. And it must be remembered that this operation was put together at the end of Operation Compass. If North Africa was to be saved for the Axis, not to mention Greece, then the Allied troops had to be bottled up and their means of transportation destroyed. Admiral Iacchino would be given the brand new Littorio-class battleship Vittorio Vevento, which had nine 15-inch guns and displaced 45,000 tons. For comparison, the HMS Warspite, Cunningham's flagship, displaced about 33,000 tons. Further, Iacchino would be given six 10,000-ton heavy cruisers, two light cruisers, and 17 destroyers. And again, not to mention the might of the German 10th Flieger Corps. But the Mediterranean War thus far had shown Cunningham how skittish the Italian Navy could be. And who could blame them? On the opening day of the war, the war spite damaged the battleship Giulio Cesare out of action for months. On July 19th, at the Battle of Cape Spada, the Australian cruiser HMAS Sydney with five destroyers, sank an Italian light cruiser and damaged another one. On October 12, 1940, Italian destroyers and torpedo boats believed they had cornered a cruiser, which turned out to be the light cruiser HMS Ajax. The Ajax had radar, the Italians did not, thus the outcome was a sunken destroyer and two torpedo boats, and Ajax was able to sail away. And then, there was the raid on Taranto on November 11th. The skittishness was justified. And because the British were moving troops to southern Greece, much of the Royal Navy was already in the eastern Mediterranean, specifically the 2nd Destroyer Flotilla and Light Cruiser Squadron, under the command of Cunningham's 2nd in-command, Vice Admiral Henry D. Prinham Whipple. Currently at Piraeus, located only a short distance from Athens. On March 27th, Cunningham told his vice-admiral to locate himself and his ships just west of Crete. There, they would meet up the next day with another formation of destroyers. But the big question was, how would Cunningham, currently at Alexandria, sail out with his fleet, the battleships Warspite, Barham, and Valiant, four destroyers, and the newly arrived carrier Formidable, without being spotted. On board the carrier were 14 torpedo bombers, ferry albacores, a slight improvement over the swordfish biplanes, and 13 ferry fulmar fighters. The latter were slow, but heavily armed. As for Cunningham and his ships leaving unnoticed, he kept it simple. That afternoon of March 27th, Cunningham went out to play golf. And during that time, he came into range of the Japanese ambassador in Alexandria, also enjoying a game. The admiral waved to the consul, who waved back. This was important as Japan was still neutral in the European war, but was also giving intelligence to Rome and Berlin. So on this day, he would report that Cunningham was still in Egypt. But that evening, ABC sailed out with his fleet, 
telling the one troop ship with them to wait a while and then head back to port. What would follow, if all went well, would be no place for a non-warship. The previous day, March 26th, Admiral Iachino had left Naples on his flagship, Vittorio Veneto, along with four destroyers. Soon they met up with three cruiser divisions in the Strait of Messina. They were joined then by Italy's best light cruisers, the Garibaldi and Abruzzi, along with two more destroyers. Being joined by other ships soon after, Iachino had the numbers, but what he lacked, and he knew it, was radar and a lack of confidence in his country's intelligence service, which is why he brought along his own cryptographer, and his lack of faith in inter-branch support was justified on day one, as the promised air support for March 27th never materialized. Worse, around noon on the 27th, a Sunderland flying boat lifting off from Greece spotted Iachino's fleet coming south. The hoped-for element of surprise was lost. Worse yet, Iachino also found from his onboard trusty cryptographer that the carrier Formidable was now in the Mediterranean and currently not at Alexandria. But after some discussion, it was decided to keep moving forward with the operation, if only to show the Germans that Italy had the will to fight and faith in its faster ships. So, early the next morning, March 28th, Pritham Wimple radioed Cunningham, who was rushing north with his battleships, that he had spotted and was spotted in return by three enemy cruisers and even more destroyers near the Greek island of Gavdas, just below Crete. Per Cunningham's order the previous day, the vice admiral turned around and headed to the southeast, hoping to lure the Italians into chasing him and ever closer to Cunningham, which they did. Everything was going according to Cunningham's plan until it wasn't. Admiral Iachino had started firing on Printham Whipple's group at 8.12 a.m., but at the time, due to trouble with their range-finding equipment, no direct hits were possible. However, by 11 a.m., that had changed. Coming in fast and furious were messages from Cunningham's vice-admiral rushing south that he and his were getting closer to suffering a direct hit, and one of the ships that was chasing them was Iachino's battleship. Around this time, the vice-admiral's flagship, Orion, suffered a bit of damage from a near-miss and a few close calls. When the shooting had started, the cruiser HMS Gloucestershire, the closest to the Italians, received the majority of the enemy's shells. Now, with their superior speed and range, all of the ships with the vice-admiral were in mortal danger. Cunningham found himself forced to alter his plan, something he hated doing, by sending off Formidable's torpedo bombers earlier than expected. Their only orders were to go after Iachino's battleship, Veneto. This worked, but now ABC's other fear came true. The harassment that Iachino received from the British planes forced him to pull up short. Thus, the Vice Admiral's force was relatively safe. But on the other hand, the Italian fleet then turned north and began to pull away before Cunningham could show up with his longer-range battleships. 
there was only one thing for it. Cunningham now wanted the torpedo bombers to damage the battleships enough to slow them down. This yet might work out. At 3 p.m., another group of planes lifted off from the Formidable as the first group needed to refuel. Though practically all of the plane's attempts missed, one torpedo managed a glancing blow that tore off one of Iachino's propellers. Thus, he was now down to half speed, but that was still a respectable 15 knots. As the Italians had been tricked into sailing halfway down the Mediterranean, planes from Greece, Alexandria, and Crete now took off to help sink the Italian battleship. The problem was, well, actually two problems, were that one, none of them sank the Italian dreadnought, and two, when they all landed, they claimed differing things had happened. Much like pilots the world over, a splash and some smoke made them believe their target was doomed. Only later would the true results of this attack be confirmed. When the high-altitude bombers from Crete were attacking the Veneto, the second group from Formidable were able to fly in low to launch their attack. Instantly, the Italian guns focused on them and took out the lead plane, but not before he released his torpedo only 1,000 yards away from the battleship's port side. Seconds later, a massive explosion shook the battleship, which stopped dead in the water. A few minutes later, she had taken on 4,000 tons of water, but her crew was well-trained and managed containment. The Veneto was able to get back underway, but only about 10 to 15 knots, and only using her starboard screws. This was the delay that Cunningham sought. All these conflicting reports got back to Cunningham, who snapped for the second time that day and sent off his own reconnaissance plane and pilot, someone that he trusted. The pilot returned at 6.30 p.m. to say that the Veneto was still afloat, 45 miles to the west, and doing 15 knots. Worse, it was being protected by six cruisers and 11 destroyers, and another cruiser force was only a little further to the northwest of the battleship. By this time, Pritham Wimple's force met up with Cunningham's battle fleet, but ABC sent him on ahead to give chase, and added eight destroyers to go on as well. Their orders were to at least make visible contact, but if possible, damage the battleship even more, to slow it down even more. Also, ABC ordered a third strike force to lift off from Formidable to see what they could do. With dusk coming on, Cunningham had to admit that if something didn't break his way by first light, the Italian ships would be close enough to the coastline to seek air support, which only left a night engagement. Again, if the Italians could be forced to slow down. But night action had its own risks, and the Mediterranean fleet had not practiced this in some time. Another large gamble, but another possible large reward. As this was another teachable moment, ABC asked his staff what they thought of the night battle. Mulling it over, there were a few offerings of, uh, our ships might ram each other, we might fire on each other, and if the Italians aren't slowed down, by the time we turn around, we will be in range of their air power, including the Germans. We might be looking at the loss or strong reduction of our battle fleet. 
Cunningham replied with his third bellicose response of the day. You're a pack of yellow-livered skunks, to which he then departed for dinner. As it may be known, ABC regularly switched out his staff members as a short time with him would age them, and he was fine with that as long as they learned something. As darkness had all but enveloped the skies over the Mediterranean, the AA guns on board Irochino's battleship were still offering up flashes with each shot. By now, Pritham Wimple's force had closed in as well to add their might, for surely this nighttime would end the fight soon enough, or so the Admiral believed. To have so many ships firing in such proximity, the chances of friendly fire was significant. Which is why, when the cruiser Pola stopped dead due to a torpedo hit from the third and final air attack of that day, Iachino ordered his two heavy cruisers, the Fiume and Zara, along with their accompanying destroyers, to stop and assist. Again, the British would surely have given up due to a lack of light. Not so. This successful hit on the Pola had taken time to set up. Six Albacore and two Swordfish planes, both types torpedo bombers, were sent aloft by the Formidable at 5.35 p.m. At 6.23, they finally found the Italian fleet, but waited out of range, only circling the enemy, until darkness came. Then they would strike. At 7.25 p.m., the planes started coming down to attack, but the Italians wisely put up smoke and then used their searchlights to try to blind the pilots. A good effort. But soon, a torpedo hit the Pola, killing her electrical system, as well as flooding her boiler rooms. But both admirals would be surprised this evening. Iachino, when the British pressed their attack at night, and now Cunningham, when he saw, through his night glasses, a group of enemy cruisers and destroyers coming his way, while the bulk of the Italian ships kept sailing to the northwest. His plan had partially worked. There was only one thing for it. ABC ordered action stations. The turrets of all the ships with the battle fleet turned to point at the approaching Italian ships. When they were within 4,000 yards, the chief gunnery officer gave the order to fire. Some of their 2,000-pound armor-piercing shells of the first salvo struck the heavy cruiser Fume, with pieces of it flying off, including the aft turret, raining metal down on the seas. Clearly, the Italians had not expected the enemy to keep at it, as they were focused on aiding the Pola. Either way, now the battle fleet focused on the other cruiser, Zara, and in short order, she was hit at least 25 times with 15-inch shells. Her devastation was even more pronounced. The destroyer Jervis would later deliver the coup de grace with a single torpedo. But at this moment, the returning Italian destroyers came within range and launched a series of torpedoes at ABC's battle fleet. The Warspite, dodging this threat, hit the closest enemy destroyer, but then Cunningham ordered his fleet north towards Greece and away from the Italians, who were heading to the northwest. Yet, to keep the Italians honest, he ordered a few of his destroyers to engage them, 
This single engagement would see one more Italian destroyer sunk and another damaged. As for the ship that made all this possible, the stalled Pola, she truly was dead in the water. When the fighting had been dying down, Pritham Wimple's radar mistook the Pola for Iachino's battleship, so he sent a destroyer force close in to engage, which is when the Jervis, the first ship to arrive on the scene, found all the Italian sailors either drunk or having jumped overboard. They had assumed that the war was over for them and did not want to die unnecessarily, or if it still happened, they didn't want to feel it. Captain Mack of the Jervis had the Pola cleared of its remaining crew and then sank the cruiser at 4 a.m. It was now time to go home. By the next morning, March 29th, the British were busy with search and rescue. Some 900 Italians were plucked from the sea. But then a German plane showed up, and of course, spotting the British, there would be more. Hence, ABC ordered everyone to the south, reaching Alexandria the next day. March 30th. Another stunning victory for the aggressive Cunningham, but the Italians still had their main battleship. It was something that ABC could live with. Malta was that much safer. Postscript. The Italians had lost three heavy cruisers and two destroyers with other ships needing repairs during this battle. The Italian Navy realized to go out again without fighter protection was suicide. Thus, existing passenger ships were to be converted to aircraft carriers. But only one of these was completed by the time Italy surrendered in 1943. A cloud of controversy hung over Admiral Angelo Iaccino's head after the Battle of Cape Matapan. But, as he did not have radar, believed that darkness had ended the contest, and did not hesitate to send back a force to care for the crew of the Pola, he could be forgiven for his decision. 